If you will and are able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll take our reading out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the same text as last week, we read these words, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again, I pray, to... um, do that which we do best, I hope, Father, and that is run to you, Father, not that we have anything to boast in except Jesus Christ, our Lord, Father, may it not be said of us on that great day that we have not or had not because we ask not, may we be a people who are continually ready to recognize our utter need of you. And thus, Father, regularly, daily, and if needed, Father, hourly, I'm coming to you, Father, because because we see just without your Son, we are nothing. Father, we come to you this this time, Father, recognizing that that's true as well. Father, that if we walk away unchanged, it was because we did not cling to Christ. So help us to cling to him, Father. Um, Help us as we meditate upon your word. Um, Help us to find it. Father, we pray that your spirit would rule and reign in our hearts in a way um, that is unexplainable, Father, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds as we go to your word. Father, that um, you would forever put Jesus Christ at the forefront of our minds and thinking that we might be forever changed and come away more grateful, more thankful, Father, more loving, more compassionate, more righteous, more holy, Father, with a greater sense of justice and righteousness because we have met with our Lord this morning. May he be publicly proclaimed to us. May we see him in that fashion. May we just um, fellowship with him in a true manifest way. May the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you continually, Father. May we Um, Come to your word this morning and find that great treasure that dwells within the word of God. Father, may you give us a mind for holy things and eternal things this morning as we give ourselves over to the word uh, for the next hour. But as we've mentioned, Father, may we not do it in in a mechanical way, but may we do it in a way, Father, that's honoring and pleasing to you and ultimately life changing for us. So help us, Lord, as we go through the word to be faithful. Help us this morning, Father, to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. If we have no appetite, Father, give us an appetite for the things of God this morning. And use the word, Father, to make us more like your son. That's what we're praying, that we would accomplish eternal things this morning. And that as a result of our gathering together, we would walk away more like Jesus Christ, ready to engage the world, our families, Father, and us as individuals for the cause of Christ. So... Father, use it individually and corporately to make us more like Jesus. Father, go with us now with, to your word and use it for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Amen. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1. We return this week. <clears throat> To this verse, and I trust that we will make it all the way through verse one this week. Um, we began two weeks ago with a new study in the book of Philippians. 
I know that some of you are visiting with us, and if you haven't been with us, this is the third sermon as we begin to open up this wonderful book um, concerning many wonderful themes. Two weeks ago, we took it as our task, um, verses 3 and 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And we use that somewhat as a springboard to take us back to Acts chapter number 16. Uh, That was the first time that the Apostle Paul engaged the church at Philippi. It wasn't a church at Philippi during that time, though. Um, It was a group of people who were um, steeped in paganism. One woman who seems to have a desire to, um, to partake of and convert to Judaism. And we we learn that through the sovereign direction of an almighty God, that even when the apostle Paul and his and the men that were with him did not desire to go to Philippi, God redirects them from Asia and Bithynia and sovereignly opens a door and directs them um, to an area in Macedonia known as Philippi. And we thank God for that, that in his providence and his supernatural work, he calls the apostle Paul, Timothy, Um, Silas and Luke to engage this community for the cause of Christ and permeate that area for the glory of God. And then we saw that as they were there within weeks, God had opened the door of of a young woman by the name of Lydia and he opened the heart of a little slave girl that was demon possessed and a Roman jailer, three of the most unlikely converts. And it's through that preaching and that ministry that God sovereignly Um, births a New Testament church in which they immediately, because of the work of God in their hearts, open their doors one to another, particularly Lydia and the Roman jailer, in hospitality and begin to meet around and feed upon the Word of God. It seems that according to Acts chapter 17 and Acts 20, that Luke is left behind to cultivate um, the, the, um, the sanctification within that church. And 10 to 12 years later, the Apostle Paul from a Roman jail writes this um, book that we know of, a letter to Philippians. It's a real letter. Paul is a real man in certain circumstances. And Epaphroditus um, is sent by the church at Philippi because they hear of the Apostle Paul's current state and desiring to be a blessing to the apostle because of the relationship that they have one with another, they send Epaphroditus on a three to 400 mile trek to be a blessing to him both spiritually, emotionally, as well as uh, materially. The apostle Paul sends Epaphroditus after a sudden illness. Epaphroditus almost dies, but he writes a letter by the Spirit of God and sends it back to the church at at Philippi. And that's what we read here. One of the most intimate letters all throughout the New Testament, particularly of the apostle Paul. It's not a corrective letter, but it's a letter that the apostle Paul writes um, in many instances simply rejoicing. And what God is accomplishing in and through his life as much as what God is accomplishing through the church at Philippians. We talked last week about how this is um, in some sense um, that, that, that there are many themes throughout the book of Philippians. And there's many themes throughout any book when you take as your task to study the word of God. Um, sometimes it's helpful to know what those themes are. And as you trek through the book of Philippians, what you find is that one of those themes is joy. We talked about that, but I argued that um, that there's an underlying theme within the book of Philippians that I'm convinced um, is the um, the purpose or the reason by which joy is so prevalent. And that that theme is humility. 
that what you'll find in the book of Philippians, as well as throughout all of Paul's life and, and writing and ministry, is that Paul was a humble man. But particularly in the book of Philippians, what you find is that humility um, is canvassed from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter number 4. With that preeminent example in chapter 2 of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ um, humbling himself, becoming a servant even unto death. The death of the cross, why? So that he could have a people for himself. Honoring God, he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Um, and there will become a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I argued that from the very first verse until the very end that we see the humility of the Apostle Paul. Um, and we began to open that up last week in verse 1 of chapter number 1 where we read Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. And all that we made it to was that initial um, phrase, bondservants of Jesus Christ, and talked about how the Apostle Paul saw himself in relationship to God as primarily a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to soften the nature of the word and present it as somewhat of a butler um, in our common day language. What we have here is slavery. Um, from a negative perspective, um, which we all understand with American culture, with European culture, culture throughout the ages, Roman culture, that there is a negative connotation with slavery, and rightfully so. Uh, negatively, it's, it's external force and coercion, the kidnapping of men, women, little boys and girls, enslaving them for their own gain and utilizing external constraint. What we find is that within the book of Philippians, within the book of Romans, within the life of the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, there is another type of uh, slavery that our Lord and Savior speaks about. His apostles speak about um, James, John, Peter, Paul, and Jesus himself use this type of terminology all throughout the New Testament that speak of those who come to Christ as slaves. But Paul argues in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 that this is not a slavery of external constraint. But this is a slavery of internal. We are bond, bound to Jesus Christ, hence the term bondservants. Why? Because of the love of Christ. That's why he says the love of Christ constrains us or it compels us. If one died for all, then we too should live for that one who died for all. That that's the logic of the passage. That if Jesus Christ did this on behalf of his servants then the appropriate fruit of that act of, of humble service to those to whom he died, that the appropriate response is that we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And that's the Christian life. As the gospel goes forth into our hearts and into our lives, we see the magnificent, the, the, the majesty, the magnitude, the glory of Jesus Christ and the argument it is, is what else could we do but follow him? Submit to that king and give the rest of our lives dying for the one, living and dying for the one who lived and died for us. Thus, we see the humility of the Apostle Paul. He who could argue his qualifications, he could argue um, from a very valid natural perspective, um, how great he is within the kingdom, how important he is in relationship to God, and how he could hold his qualifications over all those at Philippi and say, look at me, he doesn't. Um, but he introduces himself to this people as, in, as he sees himself in relationship to God, and that is in this, that he is at the most basic level, 
I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, a slave in Jesus Christ. And thus we saw the humility of the Apostle Paul. Um, and secondly, this morning, I want to take up our task um, to not only notice the humility of the Apostle Paul in relationship to God in assessment of himself, but number two, that we would see Paul's humility in relationship to his assessment of others, particularly in this passage of Scripture, in relationship to the church. I'll go ahead and give you an outline if you're taking notes. Number one, I want you to notice this morning his perception of his assistant, particularly Timothy. You know, what does he think of Timothy? And how does Paul relate to Timothy in this passage? Number two, what's his perception of his audience? Um, what does he think about the church as a body? Um, and number three, what is his perception of authority? And particularly, his authority, the authority that is vested within the church. You know, how does Paul relate? How does Paul see himself in relationship um, to these people? Because I think that that's extremely important when we talk about humility. Humility is not only um, how we see ourselves in relationship to God, but if we see ourselves rightly and appropriately in relationship to God, then what will what will inevitably happen is that we will see the world differently. And we will look at people differently. We will look at men differently. We will look at women differently. We will see our children differently. We will look at the world differently. So if Paul is truly humble and he sees himself in relationship to God appropriately, then it will change his perception of how he views the world and particularly in this passage, how he views the church. So first, I would like for you to notice the humility of Paul in Paul's perception of Timothy. How does Paul introduce him? He's a slave. Now, it might not seem at first glance like a humble thing to go around calling people slaves. But what we see in it is not only Paul's identification of Timothy as a slave, but we see Paul's humility in acknowledgement of a shared identity. We also will see that while in many places we see a real distinction between the apostle and Timothy, here he places them on the same level with a common identity. They're slaves. And their differences are actually only the fruit of this common slavery. Why? Because it is God who distributes the gifts and God who gives faith. To pursue those gifts according to his purposes. So what we're going to see, and I think I hope that you see all throughout scripture, is that that we are all slaves. And any differences that we have within the kingdom of God, it is, it is because we are simply the recipients of that great grace. And that Paul is not to boast in his apostleship outside of slavery. And thus, Paul places himself on equal ground with Timothy, saying, I am in some sense no better than Timothy. You know, my calling is no greater. And um, we're both just slaves. And if God gives one a measure and God gives another a measure, then it is right for God to do that. And we should readily receive that with joy and gratitude, because in all reality, we don't deserve to be doorkeepers in the house of God. And the right type of men who are truly humble, God does seemingly, naturally, from our world perspective, great things. But from a spiritual perspective, all things are great things in the sight of God. Why? Because we're all slaves. Thus, God is building upon common slavery um, the work of the church in all men, women, and children. That we are all simply 
slaves. Paul sees himself. First, the, 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 so let us look at the text. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. The text says Paul and Timothy. You know, one way that you can understand this is that, that this address is coming from both Paul and Timothy. But it doesn't seem so whenever you see the entirety of the, of the, of the, of the book of Philippians. And what I mean by that is that many people have taken this to, 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 to mean that Paul and Timothy are both writing. That they are co-authors, co-addressers in this um, letter to Timothy. But, but the rest of the letter doesn't seem to, to be so. For example, in verse number three, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He doesn't say we. Verses one, uh, chapter one and verse 19, Paul speaks of Timothy in the third person. In chapter two, he talks of sending Timothy in the third person. That it seems that Paul includes Timothy in his address, but, but, but Timothy is not necessarily um, one of the authors. So why then does he include him? We really don't know. It's really just speculation at this point, but some thoughts may be because Timothy would have been near and dear to Philippi. And maybe Timothy was with Paul at the time. You'll remember that in Acts chapter 16, prior to going to Philippi, who does Paul pick up? But a young man by the name of Timothy takes him. So, so as Paul is ministering and that church's birth, Timothy, no doubt, would have had a ministry to Philippi as well. They would have known Timothy. And it very well may be that Timothy or is going to be sent. That is one of Paul's goals in Philippians chapter number two, that they may, that he may be a blessing to them. Why? Because he has no one like Timothy, he argues. And it, and it may just simply be too that Paul is using Timothy in the Roman jail cell to actually pen the letter. I mean, many of the letters that Paul writes, he doesn't write them himself, but they're dictated to a scribe that records them for them, for him. Because Paul, um, it seems, had an issue with his eyes that, that made him um, incapable of even common things such as writing. So oftentimes he'll have a scribe write the letter. That may be, it may be as simple as that. When he writes Paul and Timothy, Timothy may have been with him. Timothy may have penned the letter, but it's clear that Paul is the author. And the originator of the letter. So let us look at the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Again, it might not seem at first glance like a humble thing to say, hey, like, this guy's a slave. Um, especially when we think about slavery the way that we do. But um, let us think of Paul and Timothy. Out of all the relationships that Paul had in the New Testament, he seems to have had a special and a unique relationship with Timothy that almost transcended his relationship with many others. Um, apart from Titus as well. First Timothy 1-2 says that, that to Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, he speaks of him as a true son in the faith. We don't know for sure, but many people believe that the immediate cause of Timothy's conversion was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now we know that his grandmother and his mother were instrumental in raising him up in the Scriptures, but at some point he was saved by the grace of God. He had a conversion. Many believe, again it's somewhat speculation, but many believe that the Apostle Paul was responsible um, in his, as the instrument that God used to bring Timothy to the end of himself and bring to culmination all of that, that learning as a young man that would finally bring him to Christ. Regardless of whether that's true or not, what we do know is that the Apostle Paul had a unique ministry, at least in Timothy's life, such that he could say um, that, that, that Timothy was like a son in the faith. And Paul could, in essence, refer to him um, in relationship to him as a father 
to a son. Paul, who doesn't seem to have any children biologically of himself, as, uh, uh, of, uh, for himself, has this young man, as well as a man by the name of Titus, as sons in the faith. Chapter 2 and verse number 19, you see that relationship borne out more emphatically. But I trust in the Lord, he says, Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly. Why? That I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. That Paul and Timothy, just like you and I, had multi-layered relationships. You know, um, I have a relationship with my sons. I'm a father to a son, but that's not all that I am to them. I too am a more. I have one son that professes faith in Christ. In some sense, I am his brother in Christ. In some sense, we're truly friends in Christ. I have the same with my daughters. The same with my wife. I have a wife who is my a woman who is my wife. And we have that special relationship. Yet at the same time, we recognize that we are brother and sister in Christ. That we are in Christ Jesus. And that that changes our relationship. There's this multi-layered relationship. I've had people come that are family members within our church. So not only are we brothers and sisters in Christ, but we were, we were uh, uncle and, and, and nephew or mother and child. And you see this multi-layered with even authority at different levels. And I am now their pastor and they are um, a, a church member. That, 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 that life is somewhat multi-layered, particularly in the relationship that we have with one another. And a mature man, a mature woman will recognize the value of all those relationships and when to utilize um, them appropriately. And what we see here is that Paul was an apostle and Timothy was under his authority in a real capacity. Paul had authority over Timothy. And that Paul was a spiritual father as Timothy was a son. And I'm sure that Timothy sees Paul as an apostle when sent from God with a special ministry and calling. And Timothy, I'm sure, sees him as a father. And one to whom he goes for counsel and instruction. And one to whom he receives discipline and, inc- and correction and exhortation and encouragement and comfort. And Paul often, not in this letter, but at times, even delineates and distinguishes between those. For example, in Colossians 1, Paul distinguishes him from Timothy. And he says that he's an apostle. But he doesn't say that of Timothy because Timothy is not. Why? Because there's a purpose. Paul utilizes his apostolic authority when necessary in corrective letters. But Philippians doesn't seem to be a corrective letter. Thus, he doesn't argue it from Philippians. Um, but instead, and, but he, in this letter, something he doesn't do is call on his apostolic authority. Something he does do is bind with Timothy in this letter with that common calling and that is slavery. He doesn't elevate his office higher than Timothy's. There's not that purpose here. He's not trying to hang his apostleship every ounce, every um, uh, opportunity that he gets. But instead he puts Timothy here on the same level in relationship to Jesus Christ. You see, not only are they apostle and delegate, not only are they father and son, not only are they brothers in Christ, but they too, and most basically, are slaves of Jesus Christ. And let me say, true humility understands that. True leaders and the best of all authority recognizes that reality. 
While God deals out measures of faith and callings, He does it not for the elevation of man, but for the very glory of God. And that's what Paul says in Romans 12, 3. That which I referenced earlier. He says, For I say through the grace that is given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we are many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. You see, while there's a distinction in roles and responsibility and real authority that comes to them, Paul recognizes in the larger scheme and at a more basic level, he's no better than Timothy. And Timothy, too, must recognize that he is no better than the faithful men that he is in charge of to train and that those faithful men are no better than the other men that they are to train. Humility not only views itself in, in, in relationship to God properly, but also in relationship to others. You know, you can learn a lot about a person, not only by the way that he introduces himself, but by the way he introduces others. A truly humble man, a truly humble woman will value others more than themselves. They see them properly as God sees them. The humble probably prefer others more than they prefer themselves. Hence Philippians 2 chapter 2. That's the argument. Jesus Christ gives himself in preference to the people to whom he saves even unto death. But maybe Paul's one of those guys that, you know, he, he taught it well. But he failed to practice what he preached. Now, Paul's humility is grounded in the work and the example of Christ. The servant of Christ must by implication be a servant of others. And that's exactly what Paul was. Even as Paul writes the letter to Philippians. Um, you see multiple examples of him writing for their sake. In prison, he sees that even in prison, he does so, he's there for them and that the gospel may go forth. In chapter 1, verse 19 and on, he's going to struggle internally with his, his desire to go to heaven and to be with Christ. He's going to say things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain, but I'm in a straight betwixt two. There's this tension in my heart and I know that this is, this is, I know what God's going to essentially do. He's going to leave me here. Why? Because you need it. I don't necessarily, but, 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 but it's needful for you that I stay, he says. That I'm here not for myself. I'm not here for the glory and the gain. I'm not here for the accolades of, of apostleship. I'm not here to lord over men. I'm here for Christ and I'm here for you. Even in chapter 4 and verse 17 that we referenced last week, in relationship to Philippians, the, the church at Philippi, giving... When no one else would give, Paul says this, not that I seek the gift. He thanks them for the gift, but he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. That his argument for receiving the gift was in service to them. You know, we talk about service and everybody, you know, desires to serve and that's great. And what they mean is to really take up something and to run with it. And that's one of the, 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 the things as a pastor that that is that is my my love to do. And I find joy in seeing people serve. But even the Apostle Paul argues that there is a service in allowing others to serve us. You know, some of the, the most the most um, uh, emphatic people of uh, in serving, some of the greatest servants that I've seen ex externally and in an active sense have been some of the most poor servants in receiving service from others. You know why? Because in some true humble sense, they don't want to be a burden to others. But the Apostle Paul will argue, you know, 
that, 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 that he alleviates himself when there seemingly is no material need. He says, I received the gift. Why? Because I want fruit to abound to their account. You know, he's thinking about others no matter what, even in the giving and receiving, even in the receiving, not only the act of service that he gives in teaching and preaching, but he says there is in some way a service in receiving the gift. Why? Because it allows an environment for people to truly know how to serve. You know, if we have an entire congregation of people who are comfortable and have no need, how will they ever learn to serve? You know, how were our children you know, have an environment in which they learn to die to themselves and to give to others. Why? Because we are in a such a comfortable state here in America. And we don't want to be a burden one to another. Yet when we when we do that, what we do is we restrain and, and, and kill an environment in which service is, is allowed to be cultivated. And when you do that and no one can truly serve one another in a cross-bearing, dying to self kind of way, then what you do is you kill the the fruit in the life of the church, you know, that my children need to serve whether I need them or not to serve me. I need to be looking for opportunities in which they can learn to cultivate the fruit of of service and the fruit of dying to self. I need to show them Christ. I need to serve others, but I also need to be that type of person, whether there's truly a material need or not, that allows people in my life to serve me. Why? So that they too can, tr- and can learn what it truly means to be like Christ and to die to self. So we should not only be actively looking for ways to serve others in a real capacity. We should be looking for ways to um, alleviate ourselves of, of, um, of that humble mentality. Although I know that it is. Um, and allowing people into our lives to serve. Paul was a servant, most of all. He was a slave. You know, Paul sees his existence and even his apostolic calling wrapped up in the service of others. His calling, his apostolic authority was not something to lord over people, but it was a means by which God called him to serve and equipped him to serve others. Paul uses his authority to serve others. That's what a true leader will do. So many people look at authority in a dictatorial manner. You know, it's desired, it's pursued, it's utilized for the purpose of exercising control of others. Many believe it, but you know why? Because it's true. The danger is to believe that it's universally true. We fail to forget that God ordained these things for a purpose and that we are sinners and we will corrupt them. But at the same time, we need to recognize that there's a true use of authority that is needed in our lives. And that, in other words, um, that we are simply servants. You know? We want to think because it was that way with my father, it'll be that way with all fathers. Because he abused authority, then, you know, I'll abuse authority. Or they'll abuse authority. Because we were hurt by a pastor, then all must, pastors must be that way. You know, because all politicians are corrupt, they all must be corrupt. And that one might be true. But maybe not. You know, there is a way to lead, though. It's easy to become jaded. Um, and not only that, we too have been, you know, have been totally separated authority from service in hierarchical fashion. You know, servitude now is deemed as inferior. And it is something that we need to work through as people, you know, and work through our past. You know, climb the ladder to get to, 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 to 
we climb the ladder and try to ascend to authority now so that we can get out of working for others and simply work for ourselves because we don't want any authority over us. And essentially, we're our only authority. And, and, and in some sense, that's not wrong. There's got to be somebody at the top. Um, but, but we have to remember that there's a diversity of roles and there's a diversity of jobs in this world and it's not wrong to be king. Somebody's got to do it, but it's intriguingly important for us to recognize that regardless of what our role is, that, that it is a role of service. You know, First Kings chapter number 12, what we find is that Solomon is going off of the scene and one of his sons is going to take the throne. Eventually, the kingdom is split. Why? Because a man decides to serve himself instead of serve his people. And this is read as he takes counsel from the men, Rehoboam, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse number 7. The counsel is given to him. They said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. And when you read of civil authority in Romans 13 and in Proverbs chapter number 31, what you find is the installation of servants to serve the people under whom God has given them authority. Yes, it's a real authority. It's a real authority that they hold, but they are to hold it and wield it for the glory of God and the good of people. That's the reality not only with kings, but that is to the reality with husbands. It is a reality with fathers. It is a reality with pastors. That the authority that is invested in these roles of leadership, in these positions and offices, were given not, not, not so that the men could lord it over the people and control them, but that through God's example, particularly in Jesus Christ, they are to wield the keys, the rod, and the sword for the good of the people, willing to even give of themselves. Paul sees himself in his apostolic office, not as a controller of men, but as a servant to the people. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, We do not preach in ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord in ourselves, your bondservants, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. I am your slave because I am His slave. What I do, I do for you because I do it for Him. That, 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 that Christ's authority governs my authority. And as a husband, I serve and yield, wield that authority for the good of my wife. Why? That she might be sanctified, Ephesians chapter 5 says. I train up my children, Ephesians chapter 6, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that I'm to wield that authority for the good of my children. Pastors, you are to be shepherds. Why? It's for the perfecting of the saints. I'm just a slave, you know? That's it. And as I serve Christ, I'm here to serve you. Does that remove authority? No. Within it is vested a true authority. But that authority is to be wielded for your good. And for God's glory. You know? And that we are to look at Christ and His true humble act of service and realize that as the creator and leader of all the world, that that is the type of man that I am to be. A humble servant to my wife and a humble servant to my children and serve them um, in, in, in serving, to serve Christ in, in serving them. Paul says at the end of the day, me and Timothy, we've got our differences. But really, we're the same. You know, we're just slaves. Number two. Second, we see Paul's humility in his perception of his audience, the body. Notice in what manner he identifies the recipients. Saints. In Christ Jesus. There's a whole host of ways he could refer to the church at Philippi. And he does later on. He actually refers to him as the church at Philippi in chapter 4. Which is simply a word that means an assembly. You know. 
I'm a group of visible people gathering together, both believers and unbelievers, for the worship of God, the edification of the saints, and reaching for the glory of Christ. But he doesn't. Here, um, by the Spirit of God, he's directed to refer to them and their spiritual status before a holy God, and that is as saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi or in Philippi. And it, may say, and it may sound strange to many of us for Paul to use the term saints to address them. And the strangeness, of course, may arise out of the fact that the modern usage of the word would lead us to expect something like St. Paul, you know. Like we would expect that, you know, the, the way the Roman Catholic usage of it today is this elevated, somewhat saint that is in an immortal form above even just regular nominal Christians. So you would almost expect from that type of mentality to hear something like St. Paul to the Christians at Philippi or St. Paul to the slaves at Philippi. But no, it's actually slave Paul, bondservant Paul to the saints at Philippi. In some sense, he gives them a higher status. He sees them as higher. He is servant to the, he's a servant and a slave to the saints, the holy ones, the ones with a spiritual status beyond this world. And it's interesting, in some sense, out of all the titles that Paul says, we're just slaves and saints. Of all the things he could have said. And in some sense, he's actually saying we're just slaves writing to holy slaves in Christ. The term saint is not used in most of our modern day language as even as, as, as the biblical writers want it to. You know, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church uses it in this immortalizing of certain people who were virtuous beyond measure, according to most nominal Christians. I remember even the first time I ever heard it um, was in my family. Um, and it was used to speak of a people who were just holier than thou, you know. I mean, you just couldn't say anything wrong about them or you couldn't even approach them. Why? Because they've never done anything wrong. They were a quote unquote saint. But maybe part of the strangeness too might come from our own spiritual baggage, right? I mean, we would probably be more at home with a letter like this from the Reformed perspective, right? Paul and Timothy, saints in Christ Jesus to all the sinners in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Right? We're a strange people, aren't we? I mean, we're almost the people who derive pleasure from pain, self-degradation. We love to hear a Paul Washer sermon in which at the end of it, we're wondering of whether or not we're even saved at all. You know, um, we love to refer to one another as sinners in our sinful state. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, that language is foreign to the church in the New Testament almost. Not that he doesn't refer to sinners. And I understand the reasoning, you know. We come from a, a, a secular culture which is Christianized and almost a post-Christian America in which sin is not dealt with and it's rarely ever preached on. And it's a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in which sin is hardly ever approached or, or addressed from a pulpit. So we had somebody visit two months ago and as we were sitting around our table having dinner talking about the church, they said, you know, in your sermon you mentioned repentance six times. It was so refreshing to hear. Why? Because it's something that's not addressed. But one of the dangers is, is to overreact and run to the other side and continually see ourselves in Christ Jesus as this ungodly people who could never please him. 
Listen, according to the work of Christ and the Apostle Paul, his language, not only in this passage, but all throughout the New Testament, is that once those people come to Christ, um, give of themselves, they are no longer sinners in an eternal sense, but saints in Christ Jesus. We are unified in this glorious union with Christ Himself. Thus, Paul looks at them not in their present state where sin remains in them and they are battling with it to destroy it in their lives, but he looks at them from their holy union with Christ and refers to them as the holy ones. That's what the term saint means. That's the whole argument in Romans chapter 6. And that's not to say that we don't sin. And that's not to say that sin doesn't remain in us. But that is to say that our ultimate identity is not found in the sin that we have. That is in Christ now. Forgiven by a glorious and gracious Father on, on, on behalf of Christ. And in some sense, it does injustice to what He accomplished. To continually refer to ourselves, to one another, and to the world as sinners. As if that is what now um, I, um, defines us. It is not. Paul actually argues in Romans chapter number 6 that if you died to sin and you did, then no longer live therein. That recognizing our true identity in Christ is forgiven and made holy and set apart for His name's sake is one of the greatest means and tools and instruments of God's grace to, to, to mortify and kill that sin in our lives. If you ever want to destroy sin in your life, you will never do it as long as you continue to identify as someone um, who cannot... Um, someone who is, is identified by that. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you are, you know, that, that, that these type of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators and adulterers and this person and that person and such were some of you. That in Christ you no longer are, therefore live like it. Abandon it. And that will be one of the greatest means by which you, you, you kill sin in your life by, by seeing yourself not in the world and no longer in Adam, but Christ as, 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 as your Savior and God the Father, uh, according to the Spirit as your Father. You are no longer of your Father the devil. You are now in Christ, saints, holy and set apart for a glorious work. That's what we mean by saints. It comes from a word, Old Testament and New, that gives the idea of being holy or set apart. And immediately we may ask, set apart from what? Right? And terms like holy or pure often come with a seemingly negative reality in regard to what we're not supposed to be. Or particularly from what we are not supposed to do. And I would just urge you to be careful with that. You know, in our Christian, in our area particularly, and even in my own life, Christians are notorious by defining their Christianity by what they don't do. Right? Um, in terms like, oh, I don't do that, I'm a Christian. And there's some reality to that, so we don't necessarily say that it's wrong. But the danger of that is, is that neither do the Muslims. You know, they don't do those things. There's some devout Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that don't do a lot more than you. Does that mean that they're holier than you? What separates you and what separates me is not what we don't do, but it's what we do do because of who we are. 
For example, the, context, the concept of being holy or set apart was not only used in the New Testament, or, but it was also used in the Old Covenant. And it wasn't used only in the Old Covenant to speak of people, but it was also used in the Old Covenant to, to speak of things like instruments for worship. All the items of worship were set apart for the Lord's use. The altar, the oil, the garments, the instruments like the lampstand. And what happened is, is that at some point in its life, it was set apart singularly to be used for that purpose and that purpose alone. So the priest wasn't to use the brazen laver, which was a wash pot to clean their hands after he offered the sacrifice for anything else. He couldn't say, well, you know, like after we worship today, like the sink at home was broke. So I brought it home and used it as our wash pot. Once it entered the temple, that was it. Once it was made holy, it was used only for that. But you may say, but I thought God owned everything. Isn't the gold already his that made the labor? Isn't the gold already his that made the mercy seat? Um, I mean, what's really different between what's inside the temple and what's outside the temple? I mean, it's only 50 feet difference. Doesn't he own it all? Yes, but the point is, is that there are certain things, common things that were created that he set apart. He sanctifies. That's what the word sanctify means. And he makes holy for this particular use. And listen, the gold that is used to make the cherubim that sit on the mercy seat in the holy of holies. You know what makes it unique and special? Not because it's never touched the dirt. But because it has touched the face of God. You know, if if the wash pot could just talk for a moment or if the mercy seat gold could just talk for a moment and they boasted in and of themselves, it wouldn't be that we've never touched the dirt in Egypt. It would be that we were used in the redemptive process as the priest walked by. I know where he's going to get to, 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 to give an atonement for the sins of the people. You know, that, that, that the idea here is yes, that God owns it all, but it's all tainted. And the Lord takes this common thing out of the world that he's created for his purpose in a fallen and a sinful state. And he sanctifies it. There's this act of redemption where he redeems it for his purposes and they are never to return. That's what he's saying here to Philippi, that you are saints, church. You were made holy. Yes, God made all the world and every person in it should give Him honor and glory in this fallen state, but they can't. So Jesus Christ comes and by the blood of the Lamb, He sanctifies a people for Himself and sets them apart for His work and for His glory. That you are different. And that it's not so much um, the reality, it's not so much what you don't do that defines you. You know, that you don't do this sinful act and that sinful act, but you don't do it because he set you apart. What are we going to brag about this week? You know, what are we going to boast in the reality that that we set ourselves apart from the world and we ran from darkness or the fact that we fellowship with God this week? That's what makes us different than the Muslims. That's what makes us different than the Jehovah Witnesses. It's not that we don't drink and it's not that we don't smoke. And it's not because we, 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 we uh, like a hermit, ran into a hole somewhere and kept ourselves unstained from the world. But it is because we ran into the holy of holies and had fellowship this week with God. 
That this idea of holiness and sainthood is not so much um, purity from an external sense, but because Isaiah chapter 6, we were in the holiest of holies and we were in the very presence of God, we were changed. Yes, there is this, as this aspect of, 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 of removing the dirt and saying unspotted from the world. But it is for this reason and this reason alone that we may be with Him and run to Him. And in His presence, we are made like Him. And it's there in, with the, in the fellowship of God and in the presence of the Savior and in the work of Christ that the appetites of this world are destroyed. And the sweetness of a relationship with God um, is transforming in our lives, you know? So yes, be unspotted from the world. We must be a holy and a pure people. I'm just arguing that the only way that that will be truly accomplished in an eternal fashion that changes your life is when you truly get into the presence of God. But we are not to boast um, because we were monastic this week and hid ourselves from the world, we are to boast in Christ that I found him and that he made me altogether more like him. And me to tell the world that, that how lovely, majestic, and holy he truly is. And that they are to be these people set apart. So within that too, you not only see their holy status, but you see their calling. That they have been set apart in Christ at Philippi for this special purpose, and that is to glorify God through their life. You know, you see this holy people in an unholy world. You see people at Philippi, this church born, why? To live in Philippi for the glory of God. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 12, that's exactly what he's going to argue, you know, that you are to be this people that shine forth like light into a in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. He says in verse 12, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That you church, if you're a believer in Christ, no matter the age, little boys and girls, you have been saved by the grace of God and put in Christ and set apart like that bowl in the temple, like the gold in the mercy seat, that you have been set apart for this reason and this reason alone to serve and to honor God. You are no longer common. You are, you, are, you are holy and made, made right with God for the, for the purpose of serving Him and being lights here in Philippi. Our Philippi, Kingsport, Bristol, Johnson City, your homeschool groups, your family, your co-op, your school. You're there to show the world. Not that you can run from darkness, but that you can run to light. And as you come out of that, that holy of holies in the presence of God, you shine forth as lights into the world, to a lost and a dying world. And as Moses comes down off of the mount, they look and they see the, 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 the shining face. And they know that he had been with God. You know? Does the world know this week like that you were with God? Because in part, that's why he saved you. Set apart for this glorious work of serving him. Number three. Third, let us notice. Or notice with me the, of Paul's humility and his further perception of authority. Particularly authority within the church. He recognizes, Paul recognizes 
even with his apostolic authority, all of his qualifications, he could have usurped authority. But notice that he appeals to the leadership within the assembly. Verse number one, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. We read these words with bishops and deacons. What's interesting is that this is no ordinary greeting from Paul. In no other epistle does he distinguish, as far as I know, no other epistle, no other letter does he distinguish the organized leader of the church except in this greeting. <clears throat> would you like to know why he does that in Philippians? So would I. Um, but the reality is, is that we don't. We really have no idea as to why he chose in this particular letter to call upon or to identify or to appeal to the bishops or deacon and deacons. Um, but the fact remains that when Paul sits down in that Roman prison chained to a Roman guard and is moved with the church at Philippi in mind that the Spirit of God moves him by providence, his circumstances, as well as the spiritual operation within him to write to Philippi, not only the saints in general, but in his mind and his heart, he has a special place there to acknowledge and to appeal to the office bearers that are in Philippi. Paul, the apostle, who in some sense has a unique authority within the church and could even somewhat to, to, to work and to establish, to train, to guide, to appoint, to shepherd, to correct, to discipline, who is, who is somewhat of a father, as a father to this church, who they are sons and children of his, does not usurp the authority vested in the church. He could have appealed to his apostleships, he could have appealed to his qualifications, but he does not. He recognizes the authority vested within the congregation because it's an authority vested in it by God himself. True humility recognizes God-ordained authority, particularly within the church. And one reason I don't think that he does usurp it is because he spent his life establishing it. You know, he's going through establishing local churches and raising up leadership. Why? Because he understands the necessity and the importance of having both bishop and deacon. And although Paul emplaces himself, yes, in some sense, on the same level as Timothy, as bond slaves together. And although Paul, yes, places all the saints, holy ones, separated for a common purpose for God's work. He too, here, in the same address, recognizes that this plays out in the New Testament church in a context of a body, which means that there are different people that will have different responsibilities and take different roles. That's right. We at this church are not egalitarian. You know? And I don't mean in the sense of man-woman relationships, although that's a sermon all in and of itself, but in the sense of functioning as a church. And I don't mean by what is it, it, what I don't mean by that is that we're not equal. I hope that I've just made two arguments initially saying that we are. We are no different, me and you and the other men in this church. We're all slaves. We're all saints. We're all saved by the grace of God. We're all holy. We're all set apart for God's purposes. And we will not be judged more valuable because one day there was one with a higher rank in this life than another. But upon our faithfulness concerning what God has given us. 
And what I mean is that the body must work like a body. First Corinthians 12 is clear. It has many members and each has a different function and all are necessary for the good of the body. Some may be more prominent and some may seem more honorable. But in all reality, they're all valuable and they're all honorable. And let me just lay my heart bare for a moment. I'm convinced that we will probably, that what will probably yield more gold, silver and precious stone on that great day will not be made up primarily of the front men. But of those whom you've never seen and those you've never heard. But those that are laboring hard for the kingdom of Christ in the church and in their homes and on their knees, fighting battles that will never be preached about, that will never be um, elevated in this life, and you'll never know it until we get to eternity. Things that people did never to be honored or promoted, but to push on the kingdom at the cost of themselves for the glory of God. You know, what people don't realize is that positions of promise Prominence, positions of power, more often they are pursued and at the same time they are more of a curse to men than a blessing. That's why I often tell men, don't pursue it unless you know that it is a call of God and you're willing to give yourself and all that you are, even yourself for the cause. Why? Because they yearn for power for power's sake or prominence sake instead of using it to serve under others under their care and it becomes their demise. They're eaten up by the pursuit of their own glory. And it's like a corrosive cancer that consumes them. Men will tell you, I will tell you that on many days, if not for the call of God and the compassion and care of the saints towards men like these and men like myself, the office would crush them. Because the reality is that this cannot be done alone. If a man truly is trying to fulfill the pastoral mandate according to God's call, it cannot be done alone. They cannot be done for their own glory. I thought on more than one occasion to tell my boys, boys, one day you'll be men. And if God would call you to be a pastor, amen, and to the glory of God. Give it all you've got for his sake, son. And that may mean that you die young. But you'll die well. But he may not. All four of you, he may not. And if he doesn't, that's fine. But I want you to aim high in your life, boys. Aim high in the glory of God, whatever he calls you to do. And if you don't know what else to do with that life, I would encourage you to find some faithful man in the middle of nowhere who's preaching the word of God and loves his people. You aim high in your career and you go support that man. Because he needs you. And he needs men like that. Who will gather around them. Why? Because, because men naturally, spiritually need other men. You know. If you're not going to give your life in the call. Give your life to the church. And whatever call he's given you. You know. <clears throat> Don't necessarily desire the office for prominence and power. And for glory and gain. But recognize that in some capacity men are called to that. And those men gather around them. They need you. They need the prayers. They need the support. And because without it, um, 
they will be crushed by the nature of the call or by the nature of Satan who loves to bring men down. The church needs them and they need men. The church needs men. And that means that some of those men will be bishops and some of those men will be deacons. And you know what that means? Some will not. But some will. And it's funny that it seems so long today to find those men, but it doesn't seem that difficult for Paul. With some time and training, God delivers. This church came from pagan roots with little to no background in Judaism. The foundation of the church is a merchant woman seemingly in the process of converting to Judaism, possibly a demon-possessed girl and an imperial-worshipping Roman jailer. Paul leaves Luke behind and ten years later, he is blessed to be able to say with the utmost confidence that he is to address both bishops and deacons. That this little church, by the grace of God, is under the leadership of men. And Paul glories in that. And Paul appeals to them in that. Why? Because God has been blessed, has blessed them with gifts. Ephesians chapter 4. Shepherds whom will love them and spiritually devote themselves to them. That's what we mean by bishops, overseers, shepherds. Those who have been given to the oversight of the flock. Those who have, have been given to in the service of this people. To spiritually mature them, to disciple them, and to equip them to be mature saints. That God may use them because He set apart them for that purpose. And not only that, but deacons. Servants. More in a material capacity. To alleviate the eldership and the leaders. To spiritually give themselves over to the word and prayer and to the people of God. What a blessed church to have both bishops and deacons. How did it come to pass through prayer, through um, fasting, through spiritual exercise, through discipleship? Paul is clear. We're all slaves. We're all saints. That does not negate the need for diversity in the body. And it's actually very necessary for the spiritual health and well-being of a congregation. We need humble men in every area. We need humble women in all roles and scenarios. We need humble leadership who will shepherd the flock of God by the example of Christ. And we need humble servants who will step forward and exemplify that leadership in servanthood to clear the way for the elders to feed the flock of God. Without them, we are hurting. And humility, men, is not thinking, oh, I'm incapable and oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I could never. Listen, part of what's wrong with Christianity and maybe with even within this church is that we are creating a vast group of spiritual invalids who are afraid to serve God. Many men that are approached for leadership positions don't refuse because they're humble. They refuse because they're afraid. Afraid of men, afraid of themselves, afraid to be seen, afraid to be heard. Afraid for criticism, afraid to be um, corrected, afraid to be instructed. Thus they live in anonymity among the faces within the congregation, never aspiring to be anything more, and no one expecting them to do much of anything else. But true humility is not groveling in your weakness. It's not finding a hole and becoming a hermit and, and, and fleeing from the darkness. It is being in the very presence of God. And by doing that, you stand up like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and say, Lord, where will you send me? Who will go for me? And Isaiah standing and saying, send me. Where will you take me? 
True humility is embracing the God-given the God-given call that He has set me apart for and pursuing it even when I know I'm incapable. Listen, a humble man doesn't stand up and grovel behind a pulpit for an hour saying, you know, what can we do? A humble man at some point, yes, will fall upon his face in the presence of God. But that too man will recognize that he is set apart for a work and that work he must do. Even in the midst of his insufficiency and his incapability and his inequality and his lack of qualifications for service, he recognizes that this is what God has called me to do. And the only type of men that he uses are not strong men, but weak men. They're not wise men, but they're foolish men. And to the preaching of the gospel and the grace of God and the work of the spirit, he makes those men into canvases of his glory. Because in in all reality, those are the men that will serve him. Those are the men that will be slaves. Those are the men that when they stand and they serve in all of their insufficiency, they will throw themselves upon Christ because they don't know where else to go and they don't know what to do. And the last thing they want to do is put a sword in the back or in the front of his bride and kill her so that he will run to her, condemn him continually to know how to take care of his wife. He won't stand up in, 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 in self-aggrandizement. He won't seek to honor himself. He won't try new and novel, curious type of ways to build ministry. He'll throw himself at the feet of Christ and the Word of God and in prayer, ever seeking to know what God would have him to do to best care for the saints. He will recognize that I am not here to wield authority. I am here to utilize the authority that he's given me and not lording it over the people, but being examples to the flock. Therefore, he will go out at the forefront, being what they should be, even willing to, to, to die as an example. Lord, if it takes my death to show them what type of men they ought to be, that they may be forever changed, then take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my hands and do with them as you will. Take my eyes. Take my feet. Take me wherever you ought to go. We need men who will aspire to this. We don't need humble, groveling men who become spiritually paralyzed and invalids because they are unworthy. We know you are. It is Christ who makes us worthy. It is He who sets apart saints. He is, it is He who calls men to slavery and to give their lives for the cause of Christ, for the sake of His calling. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But at some point, get up and serve Him. Live and die and be forgotten for His honor and His glory. Stop loving yourself. And start loving Him. Stop falling all over yourself. In, a, in, a, in an external piety. That is nothing more than humility. Than, than pride masking around as humility. Pick up your sword and fight. Men aspire to the office. 
I think that in our, our culture today, of Christian culture, I, I've even kind of went to the overreaction of other, where, where, where I used to be in a, in a, in a, in a, in an environment spiritually that just said every man should be a preacher. So I've almost stopped trying to aspire men because I don't think everybody should be. Yet at the same time, we should call men, at least some men to aspire. It's a good thing. We need pastors. We need elders. We need deacons. And we're not marketing for them in the newspaper ad, the yellow pages, or on, on our Facebook page. We're looking to you. We're looking for men that will stand up and serve because they truly are humble. We're looking for men to, to take the task at hand, not because they're capable, but because Jesus Christ died for slaves and servants. And saints. And sets them apart. You know. He didn't set apart. The brazen laver. The altar. And the mercy seat. So that he could put it up on a mantle. And say. What a trophy of grace. No. He wanted blood. To be washed off in that pot. He wanted sacrifice. To be on that altar. He wanted blood. To be sprinkled. Upon that mercy seat. Why? For the sake of Israel. We don't need. Good-looking men. We need warriors. We need servants. We need men who will take up the task. Serve Jesus. We need men who will aspire. We need men who will ascend to the office. Why? So that they can exercise control over a people. No, so that they can die for that people. So that they can live for that people. So even at the cost of their life, if I know that it will push on the kingdom of God, then Father, take my life and let it be. If my kids could be all, if I, if I had assurance today that all my children would be saved by the grace of God at the cost of my life, then Lord, take it. May I say the same of the church. May I not revel in the glory and majesty of a prominent position to be bowed down before, to be bowed down to um, by, a, by a group of groveling people. You know, may God use this position and the other elders and the men who aspire to be deacons to go out at the forefront and learn to serve Christ by serving one another. You know? That's what he says. I'm, he doesn't usurp the authority of the leadership. He says the leadership has authority and they're precious and I know them and, and I, I call upon them, those precious saints. You see Paul's humility there in the way that he sees Timothy, the common slaves, the way that he looks at the church. They're all saints set apart. But that looks different as he, as he recognizes the called leadership there at the church and the oversight spiritually as well as materially. And that's the application. I think it's been made. We're all slaves and saints. But while we're equal in eternal status, we've been uniquely set apart for God's work in this world. And that's all of you, church. I know there was a particular call to elders and deacons, but that's all of you. And that's the goal of this church in some sense. You know, to help and to mature so that you know how God has gifted you so that we can build the ministry around you and the gifts that God has given us. Let us all serve. Let us all live and let us all die for Christ in the sake of the body. 
God deserves your service in this life simply because He's worthy. Not because, not only by virtue of creation, but also by virtue of Christ's redemption. He bought you with His precious blood. Therefore, He deserves your service. Christ deserves your service, but the church needs your service. We were designed for it. You are all necessary within the body. And we need you to be willing to give your life and even your death in the way that God has created you. And finally, without your service, the world would die without Christ. Christ deserves your service. This church needs your service. It was designed for your service and, and the world will die without it. They need to see Christ. And how will they see Christ unless you live and die? As Christ lived and died. Be that example. Shine forth as a light to a lost and a dying world. Stop loving yourself and loving the world more than you love Christ and His church. And I don't know how to teach you that. Other than to beg you to bask in the glory of the crucifixion. And the gospel of the grace of Christ. Because He's the only one. Through His death, burial, and resurrection. That could ever teach us. That could ever bring. Our selfish. Self-aggrandizing. Selves. To the end of ourselves. It takes a new heart. And it takes transformation by the spirit of God. Therefore I pray this morning. And I pray throughout the book of Philippians. More than anything. That the thing that would. That would provoke you to service is not my passionate plea this morning for you. Necessarily. But because you've seen Christ in all of his majesty and glory. And that he has brought you to the end of yourself and put you on your face. And the only appropriate response is for you to get up and say, Lord, send me. Where should I go? What should I do? You are worthy. The church needs me. And without Christ follower shining forth his light, you will not receive the reward of your sufferings. Which is every nation, tribe, and tongue. Are you slaves? Yes. Are you saints? Yes. Are you serving? In some capacity. If not... Let us cling to Christ. And let us pursue Him with all that we have and are. Let us pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the glory that is in Christ Jesus. We thank You for the Word of God. And we thank You, Father, for the Spirit of God. Father, I pray that I've pleased You in some measure. Father, at the beginning of the service and the sermon, felt somewhat detached and wondered where you were but I trust that you met me at some point Father and I pray that you would take Father what may seem like an unholy attempt a natural man and do holy things Father and unnatural things with it Father, that you would accomplish spiritual service through what we've gathered to do today Father, we miss our brothers and sisters in Christ that couldn't be with us. But we pray, Father, even through the means of technology, that you'll provoke our, all of our hearts onto Christ. Father, that you'll make us all more like your Son. And that you'll use 
Not only the last hour, Father, but all the time that we have together. To deepen our affection for Christ. That's going to be Paul's prayer in just a moment. We know that in the coming weeks. That they would even, in seemingly their exalted state among all the churches, he continues to pray that they would deepen their love for Christ. And Father, that's what we need more than anything. We need to love your son more. To love ourselves less. And to love your bride more. That we may live and die kingdom may take dominion over all the earth. Father, that every nation, tribe, and tongue would bow down before your son. And I know as impossible as that seems, I know too that you wouldn't give a mandate or a call, a commission in which, Father, could not be accomplished in some capacity. So, Father, use us in whatever capacity that you want. We're simply slaves. Build upon that, Father, and give whatever fruit you desire. We just pray that you would make known to us what our callings are, how we are to serve, Father, and give us the faith by which to embrace that call with all that we are and all that we have. And Father, use it to your end and to your glory and give us a great peace of heart, knowing, knowing, Father, beyond a shadow of a doubt that we served and honored you. Then help us, Father, live and die with peace and assurance. Father, but we trust you in this moment, Father, to accomplish the work that only you can accomplish, not only here and now, Father, but in the coming weeks and days. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing.